Amen. I want us to stand together and I want us to pray and ask the Lord to be with us today. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day that we have, Lord, to worship you, to be in this time of study. God, and as adults, we thank you for each one that are here in this class. God, we praise you for what you're going to do in us today. I thank you for what you're going to accomplish for your kingdom today. We give you praise for your word. Lord, it is settled in heaven forever. I pray that it, you would settle it in our hearts and minds today. And I praise you for the truth that makes us free. Hallelujah. Lord, we exalt you today and we have come to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I have the privilege. I don't do this to everybody, but it's uh, good to have our teacher here today. She just happens to be my daughter, and I appreciate Shayla and the hand of God that's on her life and the calling that's on her life and her love for this church and this community, and I'll say more about that at some other time, but I appreciate Shayla, and she's going to be teaching our lesson today. Would you welcome Shayla Jean as she comes today? Good morning. Praise the Lord, everybody. I'll have to pay my dad later. We're starting a new series in the Discipleship Project, and for the next four weeks or so, four or five weeks, uh, we're going to be talking about the DNA of a disciple or what makes up a disciple. So we're going to start with a promo video for that series. All right. So if you didn't catch it in the video, we're going to be talking a lot about love for the next few weeks as the defining characteristic of Christ and of his church. So we're going to start with a little bit of an interactive uh, exercise. I don't like to be the only one talking. So the question is this, and I'll give you a second to think about it, but then just feel free to shout out whatever comes to your mind to answer this question. What do you think of when you hear the word disciple? When someone says the word disciple, what comes to your mind? Follow? Is that what I heard back there? Follow? Serve. Obedient. Discipline. Very good. Mentor? Was that what I heard back there? Good. Following, obeying serving, being a disciple, being disciplined are all things that we can think of when we hear the word disciple. I automatically go to, I think of a group of 12 guys because I think of the 12 disciples. And so that's the picture that I get. And I like that because in doing, um, some time ago, I read through the book by John MacArthur, 12 Ordinary Men. And when I think of the disciples, it can be easy to think of these, guys, these great guys who did awesome things. You have Peter, you have James, you have John. You know, all, all of these wonderful men and strong leaders in the early church who, were, who are still known today for what they did for the kingdom of God. And it's easy to forget that they were men, that they were just like us. So I like that picture that I get of just 12 men because it's just 12 ordinary people. It's just us. That's what disciples are. Our focus is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a very famous passage of Scripture. But I want to back up because I really like context. And I don't know if it's the Bible quizzer in me or the former Bible quizzer or the Bible quiz coach in me that I really like to see where 
scripture fits? Where does it fit in the Bible and in the whole, the whole of the narrative, not just this passage? And in Corinthians, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And so it's in the form of a letter. It's not split up in chapters. And so looking at, I want to start in chapter 12. I might be reading a little different version than what y'all have on the screen. But starting at verse 4, Paul, in speaking to the Corinthian church, he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, or we're all given the Spirit to work together for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And I think sometimes in thinking of a disciple, I automatically go to this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians of saying, okay, you know, we're all disciples. We all have our place. We have our ministry in the kingdom of God. God has given you gifts. He's given you talents. And he has. Thank God he's fitly joined us all together to minister to one another and then to come together and minister to the world outside of these four walls. And thank God for that, that he has done that. But then we move on. And Paul goes through the whole rest of the list in this chapter and goes through all his lawyer, you know, reasoning and everything else that is characteristic of Paul. But then he ends up in verse 27, and that's where we're going to skip down to, verses 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You are disciples. You all have been baptized with the same spirit. You are a part. Verse 28, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helping, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The beginning of verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And again, I think this is where when I think of a disciple, the way I work, this is where I go to. Oh, are they teachers? Are they pastors? What are they doing? How are they serving in the kingdom of God? What are they doing for God? What spiritual gifts do they have? And that's what I think of when I think of a disciple. But then Paul says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And he goes on to say, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And that's the intro into 1 Corinthians 13. And so he's just went through this whole situation in chapter 12 telling us about all of the giftings, all of the work and the service that goes into the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the body of Christ. But he ends chapter 12 by saying, let me show you the most excellent way. So then if we go on to chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And this is the more excellent way. Again, this is a letter 
So Paul didn't stop and say, okay, chapter 13. That was added later. Verse 1 of chapter 13, he goes on to describe this more excellent way to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And if you're feeling convicted, I am too. So we'll just all be there together. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Whether, where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And we go back to the beginning of that verse again, but love never fails. So to be a disciple is to become like the one followed. And if you're taking notes, that's your first blank. To become like the one followed. Not necessarily to do all of these things, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, but to be like someone, to have the characteristics of the one you are following. In 1 Corinthians, we read about a more excellent way. And it's something beyond a way that I can come up with by myself. And I think that's why I'm always convicted when I read that long description from verse 4 to verse 8 of love. I'm like, no matter how good I think I'm doing. It could be a day I feel like I love everybody and I'm doing so good showing the love of Christ and I read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and through 8 and I'm like, never mind. I've got, still got a long, long way to go. And it's something that's more excellent than even ministering in the Spirit, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 is needful and is necessary and is the plan of God. So it's not, okay, well, let's just ignore being a part of the body of Christ because I love everybody, but I'm just going to ignore chapter 12. You can't do that. But then you can't say, well, I work in the kingdom of God, but I just can't love people. No, you need 12 and 13. You need both of those together. In the way and venue that God has selected you for, it's something, even if you're fulfilling the perfect will of God in your life, that you're ministering the way that he has called you and designed you to, Paul says, I still show you a more excellent way. And there's something more to strive for than just working in the kingdom of God. And it's something that deals with my heart and deals with my motivation and my mode of operation. It's going to define how I serve in the kingdom of God and how I fulfill his will for my life. And it's not just the question that we have to ask ourselves is not just, am I working for the one that I'm following? Am I doing his work? But am I becoming like the one that I'm following is the question. And this is why I think we're given the instruction not to compare ourselves among ourselves. And it's not don't compare at all. And this really struck me, it was a couple months ago in my Bible reading, because I'd always been like, okay, you know, don't compare. And I would just kind of stop right there, like don't compare yourselves. Just, you know, don't do comparison, just be you and try to do your thing and whatever. But the Bible doesn't say don't compare at all. And we're instructed, in fact, 
to inspect our lives and see if they measure up, but not to each other. That's where the instruction and the difference comes in, is you are instructed to examine yourself, but not against somebody else. Because then, at that point, who are we following? If we're measuring up with each other, and we're trying to see if we're like each other or how good or bad we are compared to someone else, the person that we're following or the person that we're becoming like is just another person. And not that we shouldn't identify things in others that we would like to emulate. Man, I'd really like, you know, I, I want to be a prayer warrior like so-and-so. I really would like, you know, to, to serve the way they do. I, you know, I have a passion for this ministry like they do. Find those things to emulate. But it's about comparing positive or negative. Okay, where are they at? Where am I at? Okay, well, you know, well, you know, I didn't tell them off as much as so-and-so does, so I think I'm okay. That's fine. Or, you know, well, I'm not as compassionate as so-and-so, but they haven't dealt with everything that I've had to deal with, and they don't work with my coworkers, so I think I'm okay. Because if they were in my situation, they probably would be the same way. It's about not doing those kinds of comparisons, because then we start patterning ourselves after what we see in that comparison. Am I okay? Am I okay compared to them? Yeah, I think I'm okay. And we're told not to do that. Scripture instructs us to see how closely we measure up to Christ. That's the instruction. Examine yourself and see how well you measure up to Jesus Christ. And that's my comparison, the one that I'm following. In surveying, there's a process where when you're trying to measure something, you always set a benchmark. And so what that is, is that's a point that's set, and it'll be on a construction site, it's you know, spray painted or whatever, or sometimes it's a landmark. Usually once a project is done, they'll go in and measure, and something that is not going to move, you know, barring something catastrophic, it's not going to move anytime soon, they will set a benchmark, which is where they get all, all the equipment, they measure it, and they say this is at this elevation, it's at these coordinates, and then they will base everything else off of that benchmark. So instead of, you know, okay, this is my benchmark, now I'm going to measure to here. Now from here, I'm going to go measure over to here. You don't do that because eventually you start working in errors. And it might not notice it from here to here, but if I track my way all around the building, eventually I'm going to be very far off. And so what you measure by is that benchmark. We know this is 100 feet. We know it. It's set. It's been measured. That's what we're measuring off of. And when you come back, that's what you always measure off of. Another way this happens, it happens in school a lot, is rounding error where if you chop off the decimal at the end of the number and you keep going through the problem, you don't notice it at first, but then at the end of the problem, you go, wait a minute, I, I have five more than what it's supposed to be. What, what happened? And it's like, well, did you round your decimal? Yeah, there's the problem. I thought of it as well for me when we, set, we were setting up chairs last night. And I do not set up the diagonal chairs. <laughs> The wings that are over here, I don't do them. I do these, these nice straight ones. And here's why. Because I can set, even if somebody comes through and sets up the first chair for me, it will be very nice, and the first row will be looking this way, and somehow, by the time I get to where Brother Dave is sitting, Brother Dave will be looking at this side of the church instead of looking right up here. I don't know how it happens. It's a very unique and special gift that I have. But I manage to do it, and then I try to fix it, and I make it worse, and they end up looking at the back wall instead. And so I do not set up the diagonal chairs, because somewhere along the line, I move away from the benchmark. I'm not following the same angle 
that was set up. So I stay with the nice straight lines because that's a benchmark that I can follow easily. But when I'm comparing, and I know what happens, is as I'm doing it, I get focused on the two chairs beside each other instead of looking at the big picture. And I've given up because I can't figure it out. <laughs> I can't figure out how to do it, so I've just given up. But instead of measuring by that original benchmark, instead of saying, okay, how do I want this to look and where is it supposed to end up in the big picture of things, I start getting too focused on the chairs that are right next to each other and getting them all lined up, and then they're facing the back wall by some miracle. But Jesus is the benchmark. He is that fixed point from where we measure everything else. And if you think about how revolutionary he was in the time that he lived, and why was that? Well, I think it was because every other piece of established religion had moved so far from their standard. They were comparing themselves. Okay, are we, are we doing good? Well, you know, we're not as bad as the guys that got sent to Babylon. I mean, for heaven's sake, they were in exile. Like, we're just under the Romans, but we're doing fine. Like, we're still following the law. We're good. They followed the letter of the law, but they were practicing for the benefit of each other, to look holy in each other's eyes, instead of to make sure that they were following what God had for them, and the, let, the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law. What is the Lord wanting us to show to those around us? How is he wanting us to care for those that he has entrusted to our care? They were comparing with each other instead of comparing with their standard. So one of these guys, we don't know who he was. We know he was a lawyer. That's, I think, the only way the Bible describes him. Goes to Jesus and he has a discussion with him, and they start talking. And this discussion is played out in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Again, I may be reading it in a little different translation, but I trust you all to follow the gist of the story, if I can find it. Here we go. God bless technology. You get right where you want to go, and then it switches on you. Luke 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love verse 26 because it's the Jesus method, which is answer a question with a question, and it's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> and he said, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? What do you think? You're the expert. You tell me. What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He was an expert. He knew what he was talking about. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. And this struck me when I was reading it. I had never really noticed it and maybe it was just in this translation that I really, that last line of do this and you will live. Because in John, it made me think of in John, when Jesus is talking, and he says, I have come that you might have life. I've come that you might live. But he didn't stop there. I've come that you might have it more abundantly. And so it, it struck me as such a contrast with this verse that Jesus says, if you do that, you will live. You'll make it. You'll just get by. Not necessarily have life more abundantly. And it's like the guy knows that there's more to it, because he goes on in verse 29, and it says, but he wanted to justify himself for whatever reason. So Jesus, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Famous last words, 
Why would you even ask another question? If he says you're going to live, why would you even ask? And just go, you know, it's, it boggles my mind as to why you've got your answer. Why do you even try to go further? He's trying to justify himself. And I think he had to have known that he wasn't cutting it. Maybe it was like the first Corinthians 13 moment that as he said it, he was like, I'm not doing that or whatever. I'm not doing so well. Maybe his neighbors were in the crowd. I don't know. And they could say, mm, he's no, we can tell you he is not. He is definitely not living up to that. Whatever reason he felt he needed to be justified. And Jesus' response probably did not encourage the man too much if he was looking to justify himself. Because he goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which is a very familiar story of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's unnamed. We don't know anything about him. We just know he's a guy. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho for some reason. And robbers set upon him on this stretch of the road. They beat him. They rob him. They throw him in a ditch. They leave him for dead. And as he's laying there, first a priest comes by and sees the man. And the priest, for whatever reason, walks on, just passes by and doesn't help him. Then a Levite comes along. And these are both holy men. They are experts in the law. They know, they know what God's commands are. They should know what God requires. So if we're patterning off of each other and my leader says, hmm, this isn't necessary. I don't need to help this person. If I'm patterning off of them, then I say, oh, I don't need to help that person. I guess, I mean, if the pastor's not doing it, I guess it's not required of me. The priest and the Levite both, both pass this man. And then the Samaritan shows up and has compassion on the man that's beaten and bruised and picks him up, takes him to the nearest inn, cares for him out of his own money, makes sure that he can stay, tells the innkeeper, you do whatever you have to do to get this man back to health. And when I come back, I'm going to take care of it. I'll take care of his bill. Don't worry about money. Just do what you have to do. And so Jesus ends and says, who do you think? Again, we're back at the Jesus method. Here's the story. Now tell me, Mr. Expert, who do you think was the neighbor to this man? Who loved their neighbor as themselves? And he says, well, it was the Samaritan. The Samaritan showed love to his neighbor and loved his neighbor as himself. The story shows that being obedient to the law meant acting in love. Yes, the priest and the Levite followed the letter of the law. They may have even followed more than that of keeping themselves clean. I don't want to touch a dead body. That's the letter of the law. I can't, uh, uh, can't do that. I'm going to be unclean. They followed the letter of the law. But Jesus showed a switch that being obedient to the law meant acting in love. That all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments about love. That if you truly have one, you will have the other. If you are truly showing love, you will fulfill the law. And if you are fulfilling the law, you will show love to your neighbor and to your God. This is your second blank. God's premier attribute is love. And Jesus showed in this parable that it's the inward attitude that will guide us as to whether or not we fulfill the law. Because I can do an act that seems loving and be muttering and grumbling under my breath all the time. And that is definitely not loving my neighbor as myself. That is being spiteful and begrudging. Begrudgingly loving someone is not fulfilling the law and is not showing love to my neighbor. 
the priest and the Levite could check off their list of actions. Well, I did this, I did this, I did that, I did that. But it wasn't motivated by compassion with their heavenly leader. They had strayed away from their benchmark. They weren't acting in a way that he would act. And so I think in their attitude towards the Samaritan, we can see their attitude towards the law, that it was just a list of things to check off, and that was it. They weren't following the law out of love. They were following the law out of duty because they won't even stop to help someone who's dying. And so if they're not moved by the the plight of this man who is dying, then they're not moved by the love of God to follow the law. They're motivated by externals. And so instead, the hero of the story is the outcast, but he's the one with compassion, the one who shows love. All the Samaritan really has going for him in this story is that he's merciful, compassionate, and thinking of others instead of being self-centered. Samaritans were looked down on by the Jews. He wasn't considered an expert like the man who's asking the question. He wasn't considered holy or right in the law like the priest and the Levite were. He has nothing going for him. But Jesus says, this is the one who fulfills the law, is the one who has mercy. I have to have these attributes to fulfill the demands of the law and become like God, who wrote the law in the first place. He's the one who wrote it. So if he comes down in the flesh and says, all the law and the prophets hang on the fact that you love your God and you love your neighbor as yourself, then those attributes of mercy and compassion and thinking of others instead of myself are what I need to make sure that I'm measuring up to his law. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John writes, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Well, I love God. It's just all of his kids that I have a problem with. No, that doesn't work, because if you love God, you're going to love others. That's, that's not a God love. That's a me love, because it is very hard for me to love other people. Even when they're at their most lovable, it can be hard to love other people. But John says, he that loveth not, without distinction, just you don't have love. You don't know God, for God is love. This is another interactive question. Here we go. What are some extreme examples of the love of God in Scripture? Calvary. Samaritan woman at the well. I thought of the lepers was one that came to my mind that probably because I would be running the other way as soon as I found out that it was a group of lepers, I would probably take off <laughs> because that's not something I play with. Um, you know, skin eating disease, no thank you. I'll, you know, we'll pray for you from afar, thanks. But Jesus was not concerned about that. What else? Hmm? Lazarus, mm-hmm. The book of Hosea, that was another one. I thought the picture of the Lord instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute, and she continues going back to her old lifestyle, and he continues to tell him to forgive her and to take her back is the picture of the love of God. I thought of Zacchaeus as well. Zacchaeus is an outcast. To become a tax collector, you had to completely shun your religious, you were expelled from the synagogue, so you had to shun everything that you had grown up with, and Zacchaeus chose to do that. And then further than that, he was a cheat and a con artist and a scam and extorted people for their money. And so 
this dude not just turn his back on it, but okay, you know, he's fair. At least we can give him that. He's not even fair. Like, he's awful. But Jesus looks up and says, I'm coming to your house to eat today. And I'm sure much to the shock and awe of everyone that was in the crowd, he said that. But these are extreme examples of the love of God. And there's many more. This is your next blank. God's love is not a feeling, but an action. That list of everything that we had, Calvary, let's just start off with that one. If love is a feeling, it doesn't feel too nice to be nailed to a cross and to be there for hours, to be whipped, to be bruised. That doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel great to have people with skin-eating disease that you can catch, to have a guy walking out of the grave smelly and whatever else. That doesn't feel that great in the moment. It doesn't feel great to have somebody spurn your love and continually take advantage of you and your call be to continually forgive that person. Love is not a feeling, but it is an action. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Hmm. We don't even have to stop it. We can stop right there, and that's a, a tall order right there. That ye also love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And if you read the stories of the disciples, and every time, I give the disciples such a hard time because I read these stories, I'm like, they were so stupid. Like, how in the world can you not, like, get it together or figure out, like, how do you have this much trouble? And then I do something, and I'm like, I am so stupid. <laughs> I'm exactly like the disciples are. And so to hear Jesus instruct this group of guys that, and then say, okay, and I have to follow that as well, that I love as he loved them. Because if I'm as frustrated with them reading the story, how frustrated must Jesus have been to be living the story and been like, guys, come on. Like, I'm leaving it with you when I go. Get it together, gentlemen. Like, I'm sure at some point he had to be extremely frustrated. If I'm this frustrated, how frustrated must have God in the flesh have been to say, oh, my Lord, are they ever going to get this? He probably didn't say, oh, my Lord. But anyway, that's what I would say. Say, are you, oh, myself, are you ever going to get this, to understand what's going on? And so he gives him this command, love one another as I have loved you, and that ye also love one another. He says it twice, love one another. Oh, guys, and by the way, make sure you love one another. Love is not about doing, is about doing. It's not about feeling. And it made me think of exercise, <sighs> that lovely thing. And if it's just something that I talk about or I say is, is a good idea, I feel like exercise is really important. And I do. And I can say that. But if I'm not doing it, it's not doing any good. I could feel like I should do it and feel like it's going to be useful. I could even feel like it is necessary. But if I'm not practicing it and if I'm not doing it, what does the feeling matter? Who cares how you feel? What are you doing? And it's the same with love. Love is a sacrificial action, and it's not based on whether or not the recipient is worthy of love, thank God, or none of us would be here. And it's not dependent on whether you like them or not, which can be the other part of it that I have a lot of trouble with, because I can say, yes, I love you because you're not worthy, but whether if I like you or if I don't like you, that has a very strong, and maybe you all are better, better Christians than I am, 
but that has a very strong defining factor of whether or not I can show love to you, whether or not I like you. But God doesn't put those restrictions on himself, so I shouldn't put those restrictions on myself. It just becomes a defining characteristic of your life. The Samaritan had compassion, is how it said. It's something that didn't have to be developed. He didn't have to stand on the side of the road and work up enough compassion to go help this guy. Well, should I, should I not? He didn't have to stand there. And it wasn't a momentary thing or a feeling. We can contrast that with the priest and the Levite. They felt no obligation. It wasn't an action. It was a feeling there. They felt no obligation to this man. But the Samaritan had something that he had cultivated in his life already, and that was compassionate. It was a characteristic of him. He was compassionate, if I could say it that way. Because he was, because it was a characteristic of who he was, he was, already, he was going to help that man before he even got to him. He worked on it. The Samaritan worked on compassion and love until it was part of his nature. And it's funny to me, that this is the topic that we're talking about, and it must be the Lord. Probably it has to be the Lord, because I was just talking with my mom a couple weeks ago. I was on the phone. She was in Louisiana. I don't remember what we were talking about, and I said, compassion is not my strong suit. Like, that was the sentence that came out of my mouth, and here I am talking about compassion. So I'm preaching to myself today. Just know that, but it is not compassion is not my strong suit. Even on the days that I feel like I am doing really good, I know this is still not, there's a long, long way to go. And that's the case for everyone with some spiritual attribute. Maybe compassion comes naturally to you, but something else does not. Some fruit of the Spirit is easier to cultivate or to allow to be cultivated because we tend to it naturally. Maybe self-control, you're very disciplined, and you tend to that naturally. But even so, even if we tend to it naturally, we have to let that come under the control of the Spirit because it can be perverted naturally. Maybe you do have a lot of compassion and love, but that can make you reach out. If you're reaching out in yourself, you can try to create, well, I just want everybody to like me, and it becomes all about you. And you're not meant to call them to you. You're meant to lead them to God. And so are you creating followers of Christ, or are you creating followers of you? And that can happen in any way. If you, with the uh, the Pharisees, we see it in self. They were very self-controlled. They had that in spades, but it was not spirit-led self-control. It was something that they used as their own hypocritical, well, I'm good at this. Why are you not? You should be as self-controlled as I am. It was very, it was natural to them, but it was something that they did not use in the love of God. And it doesn't mean if we tend to something naturally, well, you know, I'm naturally patient or whatever. God bless you if you are. May I inspire to be like you? Doesn't mean that we can stop. Well, I'm good. I got that one under control or fine. It has to go beyond the physical. It has to become anointed by the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Those places that we need the anointing of the Holy Ghost, we also have those because it's not natural strength. And we know I do not have this naturally on my own. Whatever it is, it might be courage, it might be compassion it might be you know anything self-control discipline could be just you know I, I I don't have the natural strength of of being a witness that's not you know being friendly to people that's not a natural strength maybe and there we need 
the leading and the mellowing, inspiring and the strength of the Holy Ghost because it's not in me naturally. There are things that already are there that the Spirit then takes control of and makes it something that he can use. But then there are things that the Holy Ghost has to put in our hearts and in our lives. And in both cases, I must examine myself and ask if I'm like the one that I'm following. This is a little bit funny example, but I thought of it as I was writing about the things that we don't have naturally. Um, We were in Wichita, and we went, we were invited by Long, my sister's husband, and we were invited to his family's house to eat pho and to have egg rolls and different things. And they all, they eat with chopsticks. That's, that's pretty standard. My father does not eat with chopsticks. My father eats with a knife and a fork. And so, with both hands. And so he went, and they provided him a fork, and he, but they're all, you know, they all have their chopsticks, and they're eating, and, and they're doing really well. And my dad said, I just decided I was going to try it, because we're in their house, I'm going to try it. He said, I don't know what took control of my hands, but he was an expert chopstick user. I was sitting there, and I am a witness. He was an expert chopstick user for about three hours one Saturday night. And he said, I don't know what it was. It was like the Lord just took over my hands, and I could not miss. And his long's father was sitting there going, wow, have you used those before? And he was like, nope, I have not. And so in cases, it's a funny example, but it does happen occasionally that the Lord drops knowledge into your mind suddenly when you need it, whether it's chopsticks or whether it's speaking the right words and witnessing to someone. That there's something, some things that are not naturally in us that the Lord can then bring out by his spirit. Love is the foundation or the basis of knowing God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, this is like the Paul Sunday. All of the scriptures are either Jesus or Paul. And so here we go. The apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. And he says in Ephesians three seventeen that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul starts with, you're rooted and grounded in love. And again, when I think about the writer of this, think about Paul. He said, with persecuting the church, my zeal was was without comparison. I was the most zealous in persecuting the church because he felt so strongly that the early church was wrong. And it took the Lord himself showing up in front of Paul on the road for him to change his mind. And so for them, for Paul to say, step one, first thing, you must be rooted and grounded in love. And then as you go on from there, then you're able to comprehend. We must view God through the lens of spirit-filled love, or we won't understand him. If I'm trying to understand him according to my own mind or without that rooted, rooting and grounding in love, I'm not going to understand him. I'm not going to understand what he's telling me to do. I'm not going to agree with him, and therefore I probably won't do it if I don't have that rooting and grounding in love. The foundation of a disciple is love. And the goal should be to find completeness in God. Love, both sacrificial and active, is key to discovering the fullness of God. 
Jesus' life and ministry were a reflection of the priority of God's love. And it should be for us. Again, he is our benchmark. He's the one that we're following after. But what are some unfortunate negative characteristics? This is, I'm seeking for answers again. What are some unfortunate negative characteristics by which many disciples of Jesus are known? Doubt. Mm-hmm. Fear. Pride. There you go. Hot-headedness. Selfishness. Mm-hmm. Jealousy. Yeah. I think self-centeredness could be added. A lot of that comes to it. Pride, anger, jealousy. It all comes from self-centeredness. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's no indication of worth given to the recipients of God's love. It's just simply God loved, so he gave. He is love. So this is what he did. That love brought him to action. Not just enough to feel, I, I love you, I love you. I have, I have this feeling in my heart that I love you. It compelled him to action. Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 put it this way, but God commendeth or shows his love toward us, and this is how he does it, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's Super Bowl Sunday. And this verse makes me think about that. While we were on different teams, Christ died for us. And not just on different teams, because the two teams, when they get done, they're usually congratulating each other and they're all buddies. While we were enemies, God showed sacrificial love. And this is the very thing that Jesus asked his disciples to do, because he won't ask you to do something that he has not already done. He asked his disciples to love their enemies, because he did. Whether us when we were not when we were sinners while we were enemies and against the kingdom of God whether it was the people who called for him to be put to death the people who actually put him to death he showed love to his enemies this is your next blank Jesus modeled love by living out what he was anointed to do wasn't enough just to come and say I am God in the flesh I am love he showed it he demonstrated in action what he was anointed to do. The purpose was to live out and demonstrate God's love. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, this is the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches. And it's one of my favorites that I go back to because he opens with his purpose. He opens the book to the prophets and reads what the prophet says. He says, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And I don't remember if it's in Luke's gospel or if it's in another. I feel like it might be Matthew, because Matthew's a little bit more on the details. But he, Jesus goes and sits down, and the whole crowd just kind of like watches him. So whatever happens here, they know there's, there's something else, like something's up with this guy. This guy's different. What, what? And they all just kind of look at him, and he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears, that this is my purpose, and what the prophet was talking about, that guy's here. I have come to do it. The doctrine the apostles taught the early church was founded on striving to reflect Jesus' love, and those are your next two blanks. The doctrine the apostles taught the early church was reflecting 
Jesus' love. And of course, love should begin among those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. It should begin there. If you can show love to people who are not your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you cannot show God's love to those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, then we need to pray through at that point. Because here, above all places, should be the love of Christ. And I, I, it encourages me so much when people come and they say, I just, you know, I, when they come to Christmas at our, our place, for heaven's sake, and they're like, it's just everybody works together so well, and you just feel how much you guys love each other. And when I come to church here, I can just feel the love of God. And that encourages me so much because that is exactly in the will of God. And that is exactly how it should be, that this should begin in this place among brothers and sisters in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, Finally, brethren, farewell. He's closing up the letter. Be perfect. Great. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Way to end your letter. Farewell. Be perfect. Great. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. His final words to the Corinthian church. So this isn't the unsaved. This is the saved that Paul's writing to. And he says, be of one mind and live in peace with each other. He also warns, Paul goes on, he warns the Galatians church in, the Galatian church in Galatians 5, 13, and 14 to avoid selfishness that can be found in carnal love. Because if I'm loving out of my flesh, I can be very selfish with that. He says, for brethren, you have been called into liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's hard to be selfish and treat someone wrongly when I'm trying to treat them the way I would want to be treated. Or if that was me, what would I do? We are to be meek, to be patient, and I like this one, to put up with, because that is life, putting up with other disciples in love. This kind of love should grow in a true disciple and then flow beyond simply loving our fellow disciples. So it works really well together. Everybody say grow and flow. So that's your calling as a disciple, is to grow in the love of God and then to let that love flow out to people beyond these walls, to people beyond your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. As your love increases and abounds, it goes beyond just your brothers and sisters in Christ. It goes beyond your natural family. It goes to all men. So one's neighbor, the, that, the expert in the law, the question that you're asking, who's my neighbor? One's neighbor is simply put, it's everybody. It's everyone that you meet. This is your next blank. The first disciples struggled to prioritize loving and preferring others instead of self. They give me encouragement alternating with frustration because they don't get it together, but they give me encouragement because I say, if the Lord can choose these guys who are just like me, surely then there is hope for me in the kingdom of God of how he can mold and make me into someone that he wants me to be. Many times the disciples fought with each other over who would be first in the kingdom of God. Great. You have the ultimate servant in front of you, and you spend most of your time arguing about who, but who's going to be first? Yes, he's the ultimate servant, but who's going to be the first one? And they were just like us. You think about a group of kindergartners or first or second graders, sometimes eighth graders, high schoolers. They want to be first in line. And don't we all want to be first if we're getting something? And wait a minute, but, but 
theirs is nicer. They, why did they get that and I got this? What, that's not fair. We, want, we all want our due. We want to take care and look out for ourselves. And that's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to love, to have an attitude of sacrifice and sacrificial love. To be a follower of God is to walk in love regardless of inconveniences. And the call of discipleship, this is your last blank, the call of discipleship is to love as Christ loved through sacrificial giving. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Until my love matches up with the love of God, I got a long way to go. And thank God he's here to help me make sure that I become like him, that no matter, no matter how many times I fail in whatever way, he is there to help me become more like him. He doesn't give up on me, and he truly believes that I can become more like him. And his calling is continue to become like me. And studying for this lesson, I, I couldn't help but think of an old hymn, and I just want to share a, a short portion of it with you. It's just simply called the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. I've got a long way to go. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When I look at the love of God, I'm reminded of how far I have to go, but I'm reminded of how far I've come because someone loved me enough to take whatever I was and say, I see what you can be, and I love you enough that I'm going to take you and make you like me and make you into what you were created to be. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your love. Let's just worship. Let's close in prayer and in worship. I thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, that is never ending, that is never failing. I thank you, God, for your perfect love that casts out all fear. Oh, God, I thank you that you come with us in relationship. Lord, that you see in us what we need to be, that you see in us the potential for what you created us to be. And I thank you, Lord, that you make that possible through your spirit. And I pray, God, that you would go with us, that you would help us to truly be your disciples by showing love, Lord, love to you as our God and being submitted to you and love to others, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the world around us. Help us, Lord, to grow and be rooted and grounded in your love, that it's shown that we are your disciples, and they know that by the love that we have and the love that we show. I thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.